Hey everyone, this is Charlie Levine and you're listening to the Angler's Journal podcast. Brought to you by, as always, Angler's Journal Magazine, which is a quarterly publication that would not be in existence if it wasn't for our guest today, who is the founding editor of the magazine, a longtime buddy of mine, my mentor, my co-worker, Mr. Bill Sisson. Bill, how are you? Good morning, Charlie. How are you? I'm doing well. Oh, I'm great. It's funny to do this with you because we talk all the time, but yet here we are. I wanted to get you back on the pod to talk about Seasons of the Striper, which is sure. your new book, which just came out. Um, congratulations. It's absolutely gorgeous, and I'm so happy for you. It's such a beautiful book. So tell us the whole story. How did this How did this uh, start? It's, and <laughs> It's nice to have it done, certainly. It's nice, <laughs> I, I bet. It's nice to see it out, and... I think it came out as well as I imagined it could. The reproductions are very sharp and you know crisp, and the the pacing seems nicely done. And you know the words are the words. They you know the writing is absolutely oh. incredible, Bill. It, well, it's really really nice. The photography's gorgeous. Um, if you're you know for all of our listeners out there, if you want to read some of the book, we do have a sample chapter, an excerpt up on anglersjournal.com. So if you roll over to there and just look right on the homepage down on the bottom, you can find a a link to a chapter called Old Ways, which is you know awesome. And it's got these really neat black and white photos of guys catching striped bass way back when. And I I really enjoyed how you you didn't just tell your personal story about striped bass. You really told the history of this animal, and it's truly like it's a game fish for for everybody for, for generations. You know, it's had a you know a, a, an impact on the earliest days. You know, in this country, when I think the sale of striped bass helped fund the first public school in Plymouth Colony. So it's you know it goes back to that far and. As you mentioned, those old the bass clubs that I think got started somewhere around the 1850s, 1860s, where millionaires formed clubs in Rhode Island and Massachusetts primarily, and on Cuttyhunk and Pasque Island, in the Elizabeths and on Martha's Vineyard, and a couple were formed in Newport. So it was a it was a much sought after fish even at that time, and those those early anglers really applauded. The fish for, you know, its sporting qualities, its runs, its, you know, its canniness that that use all those kind of pumped up adjectives. And the pictures are cool. Like you found all these old black and white photos where they would sit on these kind of like a gangplank sticking out of the rocks and and be fishing away. They're called bass stands. I mean, the rocks were certainly as slippery back then as they are now. And they're not, those rocks are not easy to, to get around on and to fish from. So they... They drilled holes, I think with what they call star drills at the time, in the boulders, put metal supports in them, and then, you know, ran planks with handrails out to a big boulder at the end where the wealthy patron would sit sit or stand in a chair. Um, and he'd have somebody who would do the chumming, and he'd have someone who would do the gaffing. And uh, those are typically locals, whether they're on Cuttyhunk or Pask or on the vineyard or in Rhode Island. And these wealthy guys who gathered in their men's only clubs would choose 
choose lotteries the day before the the night before they'd fish to see who would get what stand. And then they'd have wagers and, and whatnot. And they kept very careful logs of who caught what and how much they weighed and lovely kind of cursive handwriting. And I think, you know, they prospered for 30, 40 years. And then the stocks kind of went on one of their periodic roller coasters. And, and that was kind of the end of that. Um, but it looked like a pretty magical time though. And it it was funny to me because from a fishing standpoint, I mean, yes, the the gear is is miles different, but your guys are still out there on those same rocks. They're still <laughs> throwing plugs, and they are the and, same rocks. I fished off some of those exact rocks where there were where pipes still put in put in the the rock to hold the stands. But it's funny, you know, there was a <clears throat> I quoted something in the book. His name is Genio Scott, and he wrote something in Fishing in American Waters in 1869. That I thought I just read it's a short paragraph, but it talks about the kind of the esteem with which striped bass had grown among the fishing public at the time. So this is from Genio Scott in Seasons of the Striper. Casting menhaden bait for striped bass from the rocky shores of the bays, estuaries, and islands along the Atlantic coast constitutes the highest branch of American angling. It is indeed questionable when considering all the elements which contribute to the sum total sport of in angling, whether this method of striped bass fishing is not superior to fly fishing for salmon. And if so, it outranks any angling in the world. The method is eminently American and characteristic of the modern day angler by its energy of style and the exercise and activity necessary to success. So, you know, That's there so you cool. have it. Dunking, dunking chunks of bunker is <laughs> superior to casting a fly for Atlantic salmon. Well, of course, why not? <laughs> you know, we still do it. But you know, there's that connection to the past, which you you've um, managed to capture so well because it, I can tell just from your writing, you know, and you you talk about your family's history and you had some forefathers and you know people who were very uh, made a living from the sea and all that stuff. And like you said, we fish on these same rocks. So is that something that keeps you going out there? It makes it even more special to you? It did. I mean, I, I, I fish in the same waters in Rhode Island that, you know, these, these ancestors of mine used to St. Hall from. Um, So I knew, you know, St. Hall is like net fishing for. Yeah. Net fishing from a beach where they take a, a boat out to, encircle a, a school of striped bass, typically sometime late summer or fall, and then they'd row back in and then they would, the, the team would haul the seine in uh, to separate the catch at that point. So my great-grandfather was a haul saner. He ran off, joined the Civil War, lied about his age, added a couple of years uh, from 15, I think, to 17. And and lost his leg on a battlefield in Virginia, came back and resumed fishing. You know, he had, I got one photo of him with his pant leg pinned up and he's got two canes in his hand. Um, he's standing on a beach, there's a net on the beach and he's giving you one of those looks that, you know, let's just say they didn't, they didn't smile an awful lot. My relatives didn't. <laughs> he looks like a tough SOB. I mean, that's, that's the bottom line. It is such a powerful photo. 
and his sons. I, I don't know what the, what the history of the Moab, but the couple of the sons I did know about, one was my grandfather. He was a member of the United States Life Saving Service, the forerunner of the U.S. Coast Guard. He did that for a bunch of years, and he also commercial fished on the side. And then his brother, my great uncle, was another St. Hauler. Hmm. And he lived into his 70s because, according to his obituary, he died hauling his seine nets in, you know, in the late fall, literally with his boots on, of a heart attack. So hmm. there was no Social Security or anything in those days. You just you worked. Of, yeah, you worked until you dropped or until you couldn't work any longer. So that was that was it wasn't an easy life. That's I'm sure. You know, but that was the life. And some of that I didn't really discover until I was already taking notes and making observations about the fishery because I'd wanted to write a book, you know, for more than 20 years about the fish. And it's only a little bit later when I discovered the depth of my uh, forebears, their involvement in the fishery, that it became even more special to me. That's pretty amazing. So yeah. in doing your research, it sounds like it was kind of fun when you started to discover all this, I bet. It was, you know, it was, <clears throat> it was in the old family house. It, it was, my mother passed away and it was time to start, you know, cleaning things out. And I'd come across, I came across old obituaries and I learned things, you know, my father's <clears throat> father died when he, I think he was three years old. So he didn't know anything <clears throat> about his father or his grandfather or his uncles really. So I wound up, you know, sharing a lot of that information with him. It was information he didn't know and surprised him, I think, in a, in a oh, positive Oh, wow. So you brought it to your dad and was like, here, I got some information about grandpa. I remember reading and then handing him the obituaries. I think he was in his 80s then, but I'd come across him, you know, on his father and on his grandfather. And uh, he was pretty amazed at the whole thing. Yeah. Through fishing, you know, that to me yeah. is the coolest part. It's like through this connection of fishing, you yeah. discovered all this stuff. Right. Yeah. And, you know, fishing opens up all kinds of doors. And, you know, I don't know how much of it's transferred from generation to generation. But I always wondered early on in the pursuit, like, you know, what is it that's really, why am I so obsessed with this fish? Why am I, you know, why am I chasing it to the ends of the earth here? And then later when I found out the family connection, I thought, well, maybe, you know, maybe there is a little bit of something there, that little bit of wiring that connects us to our past. Yeah, I, I think it keeps it fresh, too. It, it takes you back in time to a simpler places. And, you know, now it's such a busy world and we're always on the go and the rat race. And it's like you go to a beach, you get on the boat. It takes yeah. you back to a simpler time in a lot of ways. Um, I was going to ask you about how you got into fishing. There's a really cool passage about you as a young boy growing up in Watch Hill, Rhode Island. Um, uh, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, that, my earliest memories of fishing, well, my earliest is just sort of walking along seawall in this summer village and um, <clears throat> the bay, little Narragansett Bay laps in there. And I remember reaching out over this seawall on my knees of summertime for the, those little fish, mummy chugs or whatever they were. And my mother had a firm hold on the back of my shorts. I just couldn't, you know, I was reaching, reaching, trying to grab them with my hand. And she had a good hold on me, so I didn't tumble into the water. But um, I wasn't fishing then, but I was fascinated by the fish. And, and 
that's probably my earliest memory of almost anything, you know. Wow. My father wasn't a big fisherman, but he liked to, he fished off the kind of the, what was the, wasn't the town dock, but it was a public dock at the time. And we used to hand line for cunners or bagals. My father would sit on one side, I'd be in the middle, I was the youngest, and my oldest brother was on my right. And we'd be fishing hand lines with baited clams and and hauling them up one after the other. So, so you're from Connecticut, and or well, you're from Rhode Island, you live in Connecticut right. now. And yeah. I grew up in Connecticut, and similar memories. I remember casting, you know, Castmaster. We would catch, I had a, a, a drift net, not a drift net. What are those nets called? It had two pieces of wood and a net and you and a buddy would walk the beach. I used to do yeah. that with my friends as a kid and we would catch little silver sides. Right, that's like a little saying net. That yeah, so, and it's, it's, you know, I think anyone who grew up in that area can really relate to your book and, and, and this part of it especially. Yeah, and like you, you know, we cast for Tinker Mackerel off that dock when I got a little older and and caught Snapper Blues and caught Winter Flounder. So that was the progression. And during that time, when I was fishing with a rod and reel and still young, it you know, it, it came into my psyche that the, the fishermen who really had standing in the community were the ones that caught striped bass. And, you know, you'd hear him mention, oh, Old Joe got a big striped bass last night. You know, the, it was just striped bass talk was in the air. So it was in the zeitgeist, so to speak. So I tapped into that and, and realized, well, you know, that's the fish I need to pursue because that's the fish everybody's talking about. It's a, it's the fish beyond this dock and it's a fish beyond this little protected harbor. You know, it's a fish on the other side of the dunes out on the reefs. Mm -hmm. So that's what I aspire to catch. And when did, you know, when did you catch your first ones? And I, I, you know, I think I started like when I was eight with an uncle that took me for a couple of seasons and, and we didn't catch anything. I think he caught fish earlier, the seasons before on this stretch of beach. So we thought we could do well there because they were, you know, they, as striped bass sometimes do, they come right into your feet almost and they can become, they can be quite easy to catch when they're blitzing. So he set me up with a tiny fly rod and a little spinning reel and a little Adam popper. And we'd go down the beach after school in the fall and he'd have his big rod and his waders and I'd stand next to him and throw that little thing. And after a while, I was just moving my feet back and forth in the sand, letting him sink in. I was, I was, I was skipping stones, you know, sure. I was like my I, kids. <laughs> I was asking Hey, Uncle Kid, how far can you cast? Show me how far you can cast that, you know? So, But, but just soaking did, it all in. Soaking it in. And the thing that came through clearly was this is not an easy fish to catch, you know, because he hadn't caught one that when I was with him and I didn't catch any. So it wasn't until a couple of years, a few years later, when I, was, when I was working in my father's store in Watch Hill in the summers. And uh, he would hold, you know, he would keep any pay that I earned to pay me off at the end of the season. It was like a company store that way. <laughs> <laughs> I needed I needed something other than this little fly rod to catch fish. So I, you know, I badgered him for a few weeks saying, Dad, I need a, you know, I need a real proper, I need a rod that I can go fish. I want to catch a striped bass. I can't do it with anything I have. So he finally, you know, 
gave me an advance on my allowance, took me down to a tackle shop in Weekapaw, Rhode Island, where a guy set me up with a nice, I think it was like an eight foot, eight and a half foot. It was a Peterson rod at a Penn 710 reel, probably 12 or 15 pound test. Took me across the street to the breachway, showed me how to make a few casts, and you know, I was on my own. That's really neat. Took a while to catch my first fish, I will say. Yeah, but you, I mean, I think it's almost better that way. <laughs> you know, I've been fishing with my kids now. I've got two little boys, and my my son's first um, speckled trout, uh, saltwater sea trout, was like seven pounds, which is ridiculous. And it's a huge fish. And now I'm like, oh crap, I'm never gonna be able to reach that bar again. <laughs> I think it's almost better that you had to work for it and gain an appreciation for it and the process and you know all that. I would go down after school. I'd get off the bus at my father's store. I'd run through. He had a couple of, what do they call those doors? That swinging doors, you know? I'd run through into the back room where my, where my uh, after school clothes were. I'd get on my school clothes, put on my jeans, go down behind the store where my rod was, put on my hip boots, get my rod, and I would head off to the Watchill Lighthouse to, to catch try fish. to catch a fish. And I don't know how long I did that for, but many, many, many hours, you know, just casting and daydreaming. And when the first one I got from shore hit, I remember I was, I didn't see the hit. My, my thoughts were, that was just passing time and looking at things and daydreaming. And suddenly the rod is bending in the spool because the drag was way too loose. It was spinning around and around. And, you know, I was like, Whoa, you know, this, this is, this is it. This is what it's about. Oh, wow. And I remember there was one, I think it was maybe somebody in his 20s or late 20s then was fishing nearby and he showed up and and said, no, we got to tighten this a little bit. So yep. he, he, he tightened the drag for me. And I said, can you help me want to get it in? And he said, yeah, I'll, don't, don't worry, I'll help you. So got the fish close and he pulled it up and, you know, that was my first one from the shore. Wow. And there's so many life lessons there. And I, I always find that cool, too. I'm always looking for these like hidden metaphors in fishing. But you do. You learn about keeping yeah. at it. And, you know, you always learn something new every time you go and you're just improving your your skills. Um, it's, it's funny that summer, that same I caught that fish in the fall. And earlier that summer, I was out on a father, my father's friend's boat trolling in the race at Big Tide Rip between in Long Island, Eastern Long Island Sound. And I did, we fished there and then we were fishing off the Watchel Reefs. And I did catch a fish trolling with a bunch of bank sinkers and a, and a Niantic base spinner with a sandworm on the back. I mean, the rod went over, it was my time to pick up the rod and I what well, we'd hooked the bottom, but it wasn't the bottom. And I do remember that the friend never did take the boat out of gear, so I was cranking this thing, you know, and, and that weighed 15 pounds, but and that was pretty exciting. That was really my first, but I went around telling people that, I'd, I'd tell them about that fish, and I'd say, well, you know, that fish doesn't really count because I didn't catch it from shore. Because in those okay. days, I'd been indoctrinated into the church of, you know. Surf cast. Yeah, one surf casting, one, one surf caught fish is worth 12 from a boat, so. The boat fish don't really count. So I remember telling people. Do you still oh, feel that way? <laughs> no, I don't feel that way. <laughs> yeah, they can be just as 
tough to get from a boat as it can be from shore. Yeah, there is something uh, unique about standing, you know, yeah. on, on the shore or in the surf or on the sand, whatever, or on the rocks. It's it is harder without a doubt. Um, but but you know, these these fish can be caught so many different ways, and you kind of get into that. And there was a quote you had that I thought was just wonderful from Captain McCarthy. I, I didn't catch his yeah. first name, but Montauk based guy. And uh, he said that stripers, they are the most every man fish on the planet. I think of them as the hungry man's can of stew. I was right. like, <laughs> right on. That's pretty they dead on. I mean, they, were, they are, a, you know, they're a blue collar fish. Traditionally, they were a blue collar fish. And then they became, they got some elevated status after that. But um, I mean, it's the kind of fish, and I've seen that happen, that you can go down to the beach with a $30, $40 rod and reel combo that you put at you know a big box store and and put on a chunk of bunker or mackerel and cast it out sea and, clam whatever yeah and come home with a 35 pound fish you know or, yeah. or bigger i think we've all seen that happen mm-hmm. so it was a popular fish because you know the average joe could go there after work and have a reasonably good chance even fishing from shore of bringing home some fish and like bringing home a fish you know, that could weigh up to 50 pounds or more. Yeah, no, it's a huge draw. And there's this other passage I, I grabbed from the book that is perfect for what we're talking about. You wrote that um, casual anglers as well as fanatics from a broad range of backgrounds pursue stripers, millionaires and warehouse workers, truck drivers and financial analysts, the rough spoken and the literati. Did I say that right? High school dropouts, Ivy Leaguers, preachers, reporters, pipe fitters, scoundrels, grandmothers, and everyone in between. And it's so true. And that's just yet another reason why it's such a great species. Yeah. And that and that was fun. The fun part about doing the book is to kind of all kinds of the diverse people you'd meet, you know. Yeah. Some some in the middle of the night, some of them first thing in the morning, you know, some you meet in tackle shops, some you're introduced to. But they there are a lot of characters, certainly. And a lot of a lot of professional people, but a lot of just rough-hewn guys who had learned from their fathers or their grandfathers and, and were still pursuing it, you know, the way they they were brought up to do so. And they were good. You know, it's it's a bit of a tribe, and we were taught young to be very closed-mouthed about where you did your catching and, and what you used. So there was a lot of secrecy, at least in those days. I don't think it's as prevalent today as it used to be although i know people are still pretty closed mouth but you have to be it's hard with social media it's like if you make people are braggadocious to the tilt these days but um i think the guys who are really in it are pretty closed mouth or they have a tight little network that they all sort of work together with um i have to ask you can you describe what a swamp yankee is you use that word a lot and i think it's a it's also the name of your boat yeah you know i i think i asked my father about that one time and he just told me they were you know it just means we've been here for a really very 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 long time is what he said but i did go back in the research and i found a paper i wrote in elementary school in which i talked about that we were swamp yankees so it was something you know i'd heard from my father growing up it's just you know old yankees who who were frugal hardworking, you know stoic types um 
It's a pretty yeah, they, great term. I love it. <laughs> it paints a, an image, that's for yes. sure. And they had up com- they had upcountry swamp Yankees, and they had the kind of the maritime version of swamp Yankees. They're the kinds that you know rake deals through the ice in the winter time. You know they caught smelts. They mm. you know they do the comings and goings of the various fish, and they picked away at them for for food and for and for a little extra pocket money. Right, and that is a tough way to make a living with a yeah. you know whether you're digging up clams or it's just it's hard work and I think now it's all romanticized because we're pretty far removed from that hard work but back yeah. then it was no joke and there's really a few very few characters living right along the shore anymore as, as there were even when I grew up there were some of the old Yankees had homes on the river and and, mm-hmm. and along oh my god watch hill now it's one of the most you know right. <laughs> high income areas on the northeast right. coast yeah, there's no more Swamp Yankees wandering around there. Not many. Well, yeah, but I I feel, again, like the the act of going out on the beaches and fishing is what keeps you connected to that. You can still do that, even if some jerk's yelling at you for get off his beach. <laughs> it's, it's, uh, you can't you own of, the ocean. No. And that gave, gave me a lot of time to kind of commune with these old guys from my past. And, and other people I'd started fishing with who were older than me, and then, you know, they subsequently passed. They they mentored me a little bit on the rocks and whatnot. So, you know, a lot of times when you're fishing from the surf or from a boat, you know, there's long periods where there's nothing happening. So you tend to daydream, and you if you're fishing by yourself, then you, you know, have conversations in your own head. So these guys would appear in my thoughts, and I'd talk to them, and they'd talk back to me until, you know, until a fish would suddenly appear, and then sh- they're all gone and you're back in the present catching, you know. Did you keep logs when you were young? Yeah. When I was young, I, I kept some logs. I mean, I think I've got one. I've got one somewhere behind me of some late 60s when I was fishing for stripers. Um, and then when I got older, I started older being maybe my 30s. I started keeping notes on trips and then they they became more involved so you know i was trying to keep track of most of the trips i took whether if sometimes we didn't catch anything there was nothing worth mentioning i wouldn't but other trips some oddball little thing would occur you know that i thought was worth putting down maybe this was like the third night in a row i was having candy bars for dinner because you know i just come right from work or something like that you know yeah and you're learning at every time you're out there i know reading the water from the beach is a skill that takes mm-hmm. time and understanding the tide and the moon and all that. So, I mean, can you tell us what your ideal conditions are? Because I know even now in your, you know, m- several years removed this fall, you were back out there in the same areas you spent the fall, you know, you rented a spot and you were up there chasing the fall run of bass so what kind of conditions really get you excited? You know, I've, I was always primarily a night fisherman, you know, but as I've gotten a little older myself, I like to get out a little earlier and, and, and if I can get more some daytime action with top water fish or with a swim bait, you know, that's nice. I like to, it's nice to see the fish hit. It's like nice to see the fish chase bait fish and have the gulls diving. So I think that's one of the, the visual part. Yeah, the visual part is one of the, the highlights, I think, of fishing of any kind when you've got 
thousands of birds squawking, screaming, hitting the water. You've got, you know, thousands of striped bass thrashing the water, bait fish flying every which way. You're trying to throw a cast underneath the birds so you don't whack them. And, you know, you make a couple of turns and, and you're on and, you know, the bait's being chased up onto the sand. And that's that's pretty extraordinary. You know, it's a visual. That's a very visual thing. The night fishing was better for big fish and, and was probably better all around. It just was, you know, they just you, you didn't see much. It was all by feel. Still very, you know, still very powerful and still very compelling. Yeah. So it's nighttime it's a lot more auditory you hear the roar yeah. of the surf and yeah so we you know we work the tides one place would be better on the ebb one place would be better on the flood we fished a lot of live bait especially at night we fished a lot of live eels we cast them to from boats to the shores of long isle along various little islands like the same way you'd work a swimming plug or a lure it just was they were just more effective on big fish or you drifted, you know, kind of three-waying with a weight and a leader and yep. in deeper water, 40 feet or 50 feet, finding little spots and fishing them that way. The uh, whole visual thing is a perfect segue, though, into my next question, because you capture the visual side of it in the book as well. The photography is just yeah. phenomenal. You used a lot of the guys who have been in English Journal for several years, and I know you've forged a lot of friendships with these photographers, but man it's yeah. it's just beautiful i thought you know the 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 genesis of the book really came from well as you know the backstory we started an english journal about 10 years ago and that book always we put a big emphasis on getting the best photographer we could and the best writing but the visuals in english journal uh caused me to to rethink the kind of book i wanted to do for stripers and that is, you know, when I saw the impact that the photographs had on readers, subscribers, I realized, you know, the fish, the striped bass really had, had a book with those kind of qualities, with those kind of images before. So that's the book that I pitched to Jim Machette at Rizzoli and that uh, he liked the idea and and uh, and we went forward with it. I just felt I felt that the you know, the fish kind of deserved that really gorgeous treatment and the people who pursued them also deserve to see, you know, their world displayed, you know, as accurately and honestly as it could be, you know, in, and they are beautiful fish in rain with, a, with spray coming over the top of you, mm -hmm. uh, trying to find some unique photos, the ones that, you know, would resonate with, with me and with, with my friends. Yeah. So, well, you did a great job uh, selecting the imagery. So and photo editing and um guys like tom lynch who's really yeah. gifted and jerry audette you know the, they supplied some fantastic photos and it's such a cool fish it's it's i could look at them all day you know it's like they got the american flag down their side with those dark black stripes and um they really yeah. feel like america's fish in a lot of ways and i think somebody in the book says that but it's always felt that way to me as well because it covers a big wide swath of the coast from from Canada down to the to the mid-Atlantic. So it really hits the big East Coast population center. So, and, you know, millions of people pursue it, but at the same time, when you're out there two o'clock in the morning in a, in a little boat behind one of these coastal islands, you feel like you're, you know, 
a million miles away, you feel like you're back in the 1860s, um, which is kind of a, you know, really takes you out of the, your present day workaday world and, and puts you into this, you know, really captivating, dark, you know, you're reading the, reading the swells, you're setting up for, to drift about, you know, within half a cast of shore, you got to know where the rocks are you could hit, you got to know which way you're getting pushed. Boats have to be well, you know, well tuned. So, you know, you're not washing up on shore because the engine won't start or something. Yeah. You don't want your boat motor to die when you're on the no. edge of the surf. No. Um, I guess we have to talk a little bit about the status of the striped bass stocks because that can be viewed as an American success story that has been very tenuous and is now kind of the script is being flipped yet again. And a lot of people are claiming, you know, the fish is under a lot of pressure this, this fall, especially in New Jersey, the fishing has been really incredible. Um, but what is your take on the status of the fish as far as population and biomass? The fish, the fish certainly was, the fish was declared, you know, overfished a couple of, couple of years ago by the Atlantic States Marine Fisheries Commission. And it, it was overfished and people, you know, if anglers with the boots on the ground could have told you the fishing was not what it used to be. And it seemed as if, you know, taking all the really large fish who were primarily female and the breeders was not, yeah. uh, was not the best method. So, you know, for a long time, people had, had, you know, agitated for, talked about, you know, a slot limit. We should take a, a smaller fish, let the big fish, you know, right. get on the sporting grounds and breed. And so that was that went into effect this year. There's now a the first time slot, which is between 28 and 35 inches. Actually, it's just less than 35. So you can't keep a 35, but you can keep one just short of that. Um, previously, they had a, a 28 inch minimum. And if you're going to fish live bait, you have to use an inline circle look rather than right. a treble look. And which I think is great. Yeah, and been promoting more uh, ways to handle the fish properly and carefully, get them back in the water and not hang them up so their bellies sag and that kind of thing. So I think there's a lot more awareness um, because the the population of recreational anglers had grown up, had gotten so large and so good that you know the catch and release mortality rate had, in some cases exceeded the catch rate for the fish for the recreational anglers. So, mm -hmm. so the goal is to try to get as many of the big fecund females back on the sporting grounds as possible. And hopefully, you know, they will produce a dominant year class in the Chesapeake Bay in particular. Yep. Uh, I, I think if they're given the opportunity, they will. We, we've seen it before. You know, when I was a kid, yeah. you couldn't find a striped bass in the 80s growing up in Connecticut. And and it's come back. Um, so it, I, I have high hopes. It's, you know, I, I would say it's probably our readers' favorite game fish. So we write yeah. about we write about striped bass a lot, and we'll continue to write about striped bass a lot. And anyone who loves stripers really needs to pick up your book. It's more than a coffee table book. It's it's just um, it's a delightful read, man. It's perfect for the holidays. So <laughs> nice to say, Charles. Yeah, it's, it was, you know, collected notes for a lot of years. But as you know, when you work all day writing or editing, the last thing you really want to do when you come home is sit down and write some more. And 
And when there was fishing to be done, you know, the last thing I wanted to do is give up a good night's fishing to sit down and write. So mm -hmm. I kept fishing hard, taking notes and thinking someday, you know, I would pull it all together and write this book. And that, that came, oh, a year and a half or so ago. And when we talked about writing the book with Brizzoli and the pandemic hit and that kind of put things off a little bit. And then he called a year or so ago to say, you know, let's, let's, let's move forward with this project. So we did, you know, I'd get up every morning around five. I can be an early, early riser and I'm a good morning writer. So I'd be sitting in front of the tube between five thirty and six and writing, you know, seven days a week, some, some weeks like that work for a few hours, then kind of switch off and go back to doing some work on English journal and then finish the day. Finish that the was day a, with, that was a lot of work that year. You were tired, my friend. That was, that was a big, yeah. It was, that but was you've long. always, your output has always impressed me, you know, and then obviously you, your columns for the magazine and stuff, it's, they just, yeah. I don't know what I'm trying to say. You, we, sometimes I'm like, all right, is Bill going to send me this? And then it comes in, it's like, perfect. I'm like, oh, all right, perfect. I like to write. And writing, you know, helps you think through things. And, you know, writing the book was fun because I got to relive a lot of the experiences I talked about in there and, and to see them through a slightly, you know, through an older person's viewpoint with a little bit more experience and a little bit more life and water underneath the keel, so to speak. So it was fun to relive that. And I wrote a a chapter on partners and those guys who, you know, still remain friends. And, you know, you know, you really think, I know when you're, when you're younger, you think it's all about the fish and it's all about how many fish and the biggest fish. And then when you get older, you start to realize that, you know, it's as much about the people that you fish with and the places that you fish more than just the fish, because, when you think back, you know, I, I can remember maybe a dozen stripers pretty well. First one, big one that I lost, you know, big one I caught, you know, something special about a night. But it wasn't just the fish or the fight, you know. But I do remember, you know, the people better, the people I fished with for a long time better. They became close friends and uh, beyond just fishing friends. So. Very true. And I think that's something we strive for with the magazine is to capture what you're saying. It's not just about the fish. It's about the people yeah. and the places and, you know, the the inner developments of your own self and right. all that stuff. No, that's good. Well, and, 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 you know, and my forebears came into it and and, uh, and all that. So it, it was pretty, you know, it was rich. Once you realize that it wasn't just about seeing how many you can catch or always chasing the biggest fish, although for a long time we did chase big fish with some uh, extra vigor, you know? Well, yeah, it's, <laughs> I don't know. Would you rather catch one big fish or a bunch of smaller ones? Then or today? I uh, um, either. I don't. For a long time, I would be happier with a big fish. Yeah, yeah. that's. Probably what I would say. <laughs> um, well, Bill, it's yeah. you know such a pleasure to to talk to you about the book. I encourage everyone to to jump online. You, the book can be bought at Amazon.com. I'm sure it's in Barnes and Noble and a bunch of bookstores. Um, 
like I said, there's a chapter in the in the fall 2022 issue of Angler's Journal and also on our website, anglersjournal.com. Bill, it's great. I'm so happy that you did this. Um, I'm enjoying it. You're going to have to come up this spring and we'll fish the lower Connecticut River when the fish are in strong. That would be fun. Yeah. No, sign me up. I'll be there. Yeah. Just no work. I'll play. All fishing. Yes. (laughs) This has been fun, Trevor. Thank you. Thank you, Bill. We'll do it again soon. All right. Bye-bye.